Good morning. Good morning. I see you guys with this fall apparel that you're wearing. Good morning. It's pretty great, isn't it? I mean, you know, I personally enjoy it. But let's be honest, we've been partaking in the pumpkin-flavored things for all of September. I'm not going to lie. But good morning. It's good to uh, see you all here. Um, we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 7 and 8. Um, we are continuing talking about how Jesus has been and is restoring the world. The cool thing about the gospel of Luke is what we've been going through as a community, reading through it two chapters at a shot per week. We're seeing some incredible things. And I saw a sister post on, a, on the Temple Courts group this morning. She, she said, I just need to go back and sit in Luke 6. And so I want to encourage us this morning as we are reading, go back, sit, sit at the feet of Jesus, reflect, allow his words to penetrate your heart. Let's just not move on for the sake of moving on, amen? But this is some good, good stuff. You know, today we're going to talk about the faithful, the faithful, and some of this conversation today might be a little reminiscent of a sermon we did a few weeks a few weeks back, called The Unusable. Do you guys remember that? Yeah, we looked at how the way Jesus was even brought into the world was through, quote-unquote, unusable people, or people's society was, you know, we, we, we don't trust you. You're unusable. You don't have value. That's who God works through. And that is just a sweeping theme we see. Well, not only just throughout Luke, but through um, the whole Bible, Right? And so, you know, I want to start off with this hook here. Did you guys know I used to teach history? What? I'm just saying, I know, all right. Is any, are any of you guys in like a U.S. History 1 class right now? Are you just saying that because you don't want me to pick on you? Okay, all right. Um, do you guys remember learning about what uh, was nicknamed the Gilded Age in American history? Okay, Mark Twain, that's a, like the time period late 1800s, early 1900s. It's right after the big boom of, you know, all these big businesses, oil, railroads, all these things. I won't get into, like, super nerdy details, but it's really significant, and it gets glossed over a lot because we talk about, yeah, here's the rise of American industry. And what immediately happens? A lot of really corrupt and bad things. And it's called the Gilded Age. Mark Twain came up with that nickname for it because do you know what it means for something to be gilded? It means, okay, so... It has a pretty, yes. It's, it's uh, yeah, have you gotten those like 25 cent rings out of those machines that come in that little plastic thing? Yeah, and you're like, wow, look how shiny that is. It's gold, no, it's plastic. And it's painted with a gold look to it. That's what gilded means. And so this is a time period in American history. I always loved teaching this because it got the kids so fired up about the injustice and about how clearly corrupt it was, and how could people be okay with this? How could the government, how could this, how could they? All these things. But it just, it sets a fire in people when we see these dynamics, yeah? Yeah? It does. You cannot learn about corruption, or you cannot learn about people being oppressed and not feel something from it. And I like to flip the script. I like to say, okay, yes, you don't like this now, but what if you were the child of one of those uh, wealthy people? 
What if you were in their family? And, and this is, there were people, reporters, okay, I'm quizzing you guys, just to pick on you guys, because this is more recent for you. But what were the, the journalists that like exposed all this stuff? Okay, muckrakers, muckrakers. There's journalists who are exposing these things. Uh, Rockefeller and his oil tycoon, Standard Oil, was taken down by a woman, Ida Tarbell, probably the most notorious muckraker, just exposed them and their practices and their corruption. It's incredible. We don't talk about these people enough. Google, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, what's the point? The point of this is, now what if you were one of the people benefiting off of the Gilded Age? Would you feel that same sense of like, oh yeah, we gotta fix this? If you had these journalists, these muckrakers were trying to basically take everything, all of that away from your family, this system that was set up to benefit you, you're really telling me, you're like, yeah, I would give that all away because it's so wrong. Really? It's 100, 150 years ago was that time period, and we still see that. Has a human heart changed in 150 years? As we read the gospel, we're going to encounter possibly some, some parallels. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. I did not create that. <laughs> it does, though. And we're going to see some parallels, some dynamics within the human nature, human heart. Hum the human heart hasn't changed much in 150 years. The human heart hasn't changed much in 2,000 years. That's why we can read scripture and feel it because it connects with us on a deep level. So hold on to that, because I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to draw that back in later. We, you know, but we like exposure as long as it doesn't expose us. Right? Right? You know, this is what Jesus is doing, I believe, and we see this pretty clearly here in, in Luke 7. He's exposing. He is, in some really profound ways. But he's doing it for a purpose. He wants to expose humanity's heart that is not that has a lack of faith in God. And he wants to restore our hearts to a place of trust and faithfulness to God so we can take part in his redemptive story. Is that not what Jesus came to do? Is that not how he operates? We see that. Faith was his focus. And so we're talking about the faithful. Two handles, all right? Two handles today. One, the faithful trust. And two, self-faith is a bust. So let's talk about how the faithful trust, okay? Are you in Luke 7? Okay, I'm almost there. Give me just a second. All right, so what I want to do now is I want to kind of give you, I think I did this last time too, but kind of some snapshots of how faith is an important element in this past, these passages we've been reading together this past week, okay? So we're going to kind of, kind of skip through a little bit, all right? Yep. I'll try not to go too fast. If I am, just say something. But we see, we see faith as a significant element in the Gospel of Luke. Here in chapter 7, in, in verse 9, it says when, when, when Jesus was... Feeling, uh, uh, interacting with the centurion? Yeah? He says, when Jesus heard this, his response, he was amazed at him. I think the Gospels only say that Jesus was amazed at somebody two times. It's a big, big deal. 
And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, even in Israel. In chapter 7, let's go to skip along here to verse 50 with me. This is where uh, uh, Jesus is being anointed by a woman, and we're going to come back to this story here. Um, in verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Chapter 8 and verse 3. Okay, here's the thing. Just because the verse doesn't say the word faith doesn't mean faith is not an element. Okay? So we can go back and look at Abraham's faithfulness. Genesis 15, verse 2. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. That means he had faith. Paul made that connection in Hebrews 11. He knows that means faith, right? Okay, so I'm giving a caveat. Verse 3, it's talking about these women who were providing for the ministry of Jesus. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Let's talk about this for just a minute. How much faith that has when you are in the enemy's palace to take that money and give it to the guy who is subverting him. Oh my goodness, you talk about faith. You talk about a trust in God where Herod is cutting people's heads off left and right. Wow. Let's not miss that. In chapter 8, verse 25, on the boat with his disciples, they're freaking out. Master, master, we're going to drown. He got up, rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. What did Jesus say? Where's your faith? Verse 48. This is the healing of a sick woman. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. We're not just going to see this in these two chapters. It's going to be throughout throughout the story of Jesus, throughout the Gospel of Luke. Are you with me, though? Do you see how faith plays an important role? That's not even all of them. I just went through and just, here's some snapshots. Jesus is looking for people who trust in God more than anything. And they trust him, not because of necessarily anything, quote-unquote, special about him. There was nothing about him that was attractive. We don't we don't know, we, don't, we aren't told if he was tall or big or handsome or any of those things. From what we do know, there's nothing about him that was just, it was, he was just a common dude, right? He's like your default skin on Fortnite or whatever. <laughs> Maybe I'm trying too hard to be relevant, okay. But you understand? Why did they have faith in him? Because God promised him. Because this is the guy God's been talking about. Their faith in Jesus is faith in God's promises, okay? Faith and truth are vital to following God. That's something we learned way back in uh, uh, down the hall. Yes? Kingdom kids? And, and I, I was talking about in pre-service, I said, okay, today's topic is going to be something 10 million other churches are talking about this morning. Faith. It's another one of those words, Right? But it is. Why does Jesus care so much about it? Really? And what does that look like for us? 
comma, really, comma, or question mark. Faith and trust are vital to following God. Um, all right, let's, let's take our field trip back to the Old Testament. It's, we're due. It's time. <laughs> That's what we're doing. We're weaving Luke back into these themes that are throughout God's, God's story, God's message here. You go with me to Genesis chapter 12. I think we've been here enough. You know where we're going. Faith and, tr and, and trust are vital to following God. Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. Then, then, then the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. Stop right there. Listen. Who, who is, let's just stop right there. Who will do that? Give up everything, your identity, your connection, your lifelines, your future, your inheritance, your legacy. Give that all up. Just, just, just leave that and follow me. Okay. All right. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went. So blank went. Let that be said about us. Yes? So Jocelyn went. So Josh went. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. We get into like our 40s and we're like, I've done my time. <laughs> right? I'm, I'm, I'm feeling that way now. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people that he required in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. There's a lot we could dig into here about what all he was leaving behind and what that really meant, but I, I hope that we feel that. I hope that we feel that on some level. Let's go, let's go to Paul's epistles, uh, Hebrews 11. We're going to make some connections here. I don't even have a lot to say because I think the scriptures are going to say it all. In Hebrews 11, let's start in verse 8. Um, I said Paul, man, my apologies. Um, we actually don't know the author of Hebrews. We talked about this before. Maybe Apollos, but let's read. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place where he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents. That should sound weird. He lived in tents. Didn't build a city. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Hold on to that. He wasn't worried about building his own city because he knew God has promised something so much greater. God can build so much better than we can. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. 
And so from this one man, and he, as good as dead, because he's pretty old, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the skies and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith. When they died, they didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them, welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Are we too busy trying to make our own home here in our own way and not trusting the builder? People who say such things show they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son. We know why that's important? Because where Abraham come from, when he was Abram, when he was in the Chaldeans, that's what you did. That's how you worshipped your God. You killed your firstborn. Are you, did, Abram, Abraham, did you really leave that? Do you really trust me? Are you still holding on to that way of living? Your own aspirations, your own way of thinking things should go? Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Let's stop there. We could just keep reading, amen? One more place. Come with me to Galatians. We're going too fast? Okay, good. Galatians 3. We'll start in verse 7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Doesn't say those that are circumcised. Doesn't say those that are doing these things. Check, 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 check. Those who have faith are the children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Why are we talking about, he is, and it says it right here, Abraham in the Bible, when we're looking at people, he's the man of trust in God. In ridiculous circumstances, in places no one else would. Why did God pick him and his family? Because there's something different about this guy. There's something different about his family where they just trust in God. And they're not perfect. They do weird stuff. Yeah. <laughs> as do I, as do we. Yeah. But there's something different about him. It's because he trusts in God. Abram's considered the ultimate example of, of human trust in God. He trusted where others wouldn't even dare. The indicator from God, from the beginning, <clears throat> was always faith, always trust. Everything else was a mechanism for God working within and among a damaged humanity. God trying to work side by side. Okay, this is tough for you. You're trying to, I need you to be different than the nations. You can't be different than the nations on your own. Okay, let me give these things to you to help you learn how to be different than the nations. Okay, that's a law, yes? 
But the indicator, the indicator was always faith and trust. Jesus exposed how society had forsaken faith in God for the facade of righteousness, the look of righteousness. We are made to live by faith. You know, we talked a couple weeks ago, we're made to be powered by the Spirit. There's a lot of things we're made for that we aren't living as. That's part of the problem here, right, with humans? We're made to live by faith. You know, this is, this is, this is so, this is profound. Um, there was an article by the Harvard, uh, Har- Harvard, Harvard. There's a reason I didn't go there. <laughs> Harvard Business Review. There's a lot of reasons. Uh, in 2009, it's called Rethinking Trust. Rethinking Trust. <clears throat> this is just a quote from it. As social, uh, social psychologist Shelley Taylor noted, in her summary of the scientific evidence, scientists now consider the nurturant qualities of life, the parent-child bond, cooperation, and other benign social ties, the small things, to be critical attributes that drive brain development, accounting for our success as a species. Sorry, that word's always like species. The tendency to trust just makes sense. And they say in our evolutionary history, this is a secular article, yes? My point is here, that even the secular world knows that we are made to trust. They're talking about a trust in one another, but it even goes beyond that. To trust in God. Science is finding this to be true. Y'all, it's about faith. The whole preface of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 11, is like the preface. The whole preface of the Bible, it shows that humans were extended trust and were to reciprocate that back to God. We see that with Adam and Eve, yes? And that was, that was how we were made, us, until the fall. Wasn't the whole thing started with a lack of trust in God? Hmm. The downfall of faith. Those entrusted to champion a people of God were those that had faith in him. That's a theme we'll see all throughout the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So I want to back us up here. I should have said this a while ago. It isn't about us asking the question, what does faith mean? Well, Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines faith as, stop it. What is faith, or how do I do it? Tell me how to do it. Give me the three easy steps to living a faithful life. And if I'm actually quoting a book, that's not on purpose, but maybe there probably is a book named that. (laughs) If anything, it's breaking down, why don't I live by faith? Why don't I live by faith? Because we're made to live by faith. We're made to trust in God. This matters because a lack of faith is a direct result of sin. Sin is living by our own story and not God's. Jesus absolutely cared about faith. We see that in 825, Luke 825. Let's go back there. I I know I read that quickly. 
Let's talk about this. Luke 8.25. You know what's interesting? As much as, as knuckle-headed as his disciples were and all the stuff they said and did, Jesus doesn't often rebuke them, surprisingly. Where I don't know about you, but me, if I were in that place, I would have a lot to say to them a lot of the time. But Jesus didn't do that. But he did rebuke them strongly in certain situations. It's when they didn't have faith. That should say something. That should say something about the way we view ourselves and our relationship with God, our discipling relationships with one another. We get caught up in preference, uh, like preferences and opinions a lot. But do we care when someone has a lack of faith? Is that what it matters to God? It's 8.25. He rebukes his disciples only when they lack faith in God. Jesus tolerates a lot in people. But he cannot tolerate faithlessness. He can't. He doesn't. And we shouldn't either. But it starts with ourselves. This should reframe a lot of things that we don't have time to talk all about this morning. He couldn't tolerate faithlessness because it's one of the most inhuman things to not trust in God. Do you believe that? It is inhuman to not have faith in God. What I mean by that is that we're made to trust him. Therefore, it, it didn't matter as much about a person's portrayal of their faith as much as it mattered to Jesus about their heart. That's a plug for Luke, uh, Luke 11. That'll be a, a good one. That'll be a hard one for, a pro- should be a hard one for us to read and process. The, the woe to the Pharisees. Woe, oh yeah. Faith is the key building block to God's story with humans. So let's talk. We talked about why faith matters to Jesus, why faith matters to us. Now let's talk about this concept called self-faith. Self-faith is a bust. It just is. A lack of faith in God is due to an unhealthy amount of faith in ourselves. In nearly every encounter with restoring the faithful, Jesus is also addressing other people around that have a lot of faith in themselves and their systems. So an example here, let's go to Luke uh, 7, verse 36. Uh, let's, let's dive into one, one passage here and sit on it for a minute. Okay. <clears throat> When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Stop. When you enter into someone's house, there's certain things that are supposed to happen. So what do we do in our culture today when someone comes in? What do you say? What do you do? Can I take your coat? Want something? Dan, you're on it, brother. Yes, I'm a little parched. Thank you. Yes. Right. Hello, how are you? Can I take your coat? Come on in. Make yourself at home. Maybe you turn off the TV to show them that you have time for them. Offer them a drink. I don't know. I mean, there's just things we do in our Midwest nice culture. 
Yeah, and we also have cues for when we don't want to be nice anymore. It's another conversation. <laughs> well. <laughs> but we have codes. That's our culture. They had that as well. There's things you did. Washing. Offering oil, anointing their heads with oil. Washing their feet. I mean, there's just, there's just a thing. We can go into more details, but there's just a process that's omitted. It doesn't happen. Jesus goes in, nothing happens, and so he just goes in and sits at the table. He reclines at the table. There's more stuff there, too. Monday night group, we're going to get it in. Oh, my gosh. This, this passage right here is incredible. Let's keep moving because that's one verse. Okay, <clears throat> a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Uh, some people say this is Mary Magdalene. We, we, we don't know who this was. Uh, Luke is using some kind words to not say specifically what she was known for, and so that kind of leaves a lot to the imagination. The point is that she was an outsider. As she stood behind him at his feet, Weeping. Why was she crying? Because Jesus was just dissed, done a great dishonor in front of everybody. It was not just Jesus and the Pharisee. There's a lot of people here. She's crying. This is wrong. This is a rabbi. He just got dissed in front of everyone. She began to wet his feet with her tears. I'm going to do what they didn't do. She wiped them with her hair, as wrong as that was in this time and culture. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. Perfume on them. When the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, uh, Simon, I have something to tell you. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Has someone ever said that to you? I got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. <laughs> Jesus is very Jesus-like here. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owned, uh, owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them did he love more? Or, or, or which of them will love him more? Excuse me. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven? You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. That's also when you enter someone's house, they are supposed to greet you with a kiss, like on the cheek, you know. We don't do that here. That's not Midwestern. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. As great as... Uh, as her great love has shown, whoever has forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Confirmation statement. Not that he's doing, your sins are forgiven. You're showing it because you're living like it. The other guests begin to say among themselves, who's this guy that forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. It's a confirmation statement. Go in peace. All right. Despite how close the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, despite how close they were to God, how close they were, they had God's word. 
they had been his people for all this time. Even them found ways to build these systems to benefit themselves. It's like they wanted to build their own kingdom inside of God's kingdom. Yes, and put their walls up and all these things. They had these different things in place, and we see that here. When, when, when you hosted someone into your house, the really righteous people in society, the Pharisees and whoever, when they hosted someone to come in, like a rabbi, a special person, they inv- it was an open door. Anybody could come in, but only certain people could sit at the table. But the, the poor and the oppressed in the community, they could come in too. They had to sit against the wall, and they had to wait until everybody was done eating so that then they could be served by the host, and everyone can see how righteous they were. It's a show. It's a show. It's gilded. It's a facade. In the meantime, they were totally neglecting their role as being a blessing to the nations. They got shown up by who in their minds they considered one of the lowest people in their community. How must that feel? And Jesus lifts her up and exhorts her and uses her as an example of faith. The Pharisees and and, and the like, these groups, these dominant religious groups, they had a lot of faith in themselves, in their systems. Systems they built off of twisted theology and trying to compete with other groups and nations around them to elevate themselves on the back of others. When we have self-faith, we're building our own kingdom and not God's. We do this all the time. On an individual level, in a communal level, we do this all the time. Just look around. Look at human history. Do I need to say anything else? We do it through systems, programs, agendas, but it's almost always at the cost of others. That's why, that's why when humans in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, let us come do this. Let's come build for our own. We don't, we don't need faith in God. We have faith in ourselves. We don't need him to build. We can do it. Humans without God are always trying to be their own gods. Me, let me make this personal. Me without God I'm always trying to be my own God. What about you? It's easier to see ourselves from the position of the faithful oppressed. We like that. We like that. We like that. Sorry. What? (laughs) How many of us are willing to see ourselves from the perspective of the Pharisees and those that are building their own kingdom? That's hard for me. That is hard for me. Especially if you've been a part of a culture, a culture or a system that has benefited off of other people. Oh, that, it's hard. You've got to swallow your pride. Are we trying to build our own kingdom in God's kingdom? Have our cake and eat it too? The default of fallen humanity is self Faith, as much as we were made to have faith in God, part of the consequence of sin and the legacy that's passed down is we just want to have faith in ourselves, what we can do and build. Am I being too repetitive? 
Someone say yes, because then I can say good. Because we got to get this. I need to be reminded of this. I need to be reminded of this. What does your self-faith look like today? Are you willing to go there with yourself? Are you willing to have mature, loving people in your life go there with you? Where are you trusting in your own self or systems around you more than God and his story? You know, I think after talking about the magnitude of this, for me to share something, this, this might seem a bit mundane, but I think we can probably, maybe some people can relate with me on this. One area of my life where I'm so, I feel like, consumed with trying to be, where I have self-faith is my schedule. Let me talk about that. There's a lot of things I think I should be doing. There's a lot of things I want to do. There's a lot of times I want to do nothing. Are you with me? And um, I've got to the practice of literally making a schedule. And like, you know, I, that's one of the things I learned in college is like, I got to do this or I'm not, I'm going to drown. And I've done that pretty much ever since. Something I've learned or maybe haven't learned is that every single week doesn't go the way I plan. It never does. I put a lot of trust in the way I want to spend my time. You see the me, my language I'm using? But I'm just being vulnerable. This is how I feel. The things I think need to get done, get, get done. Trying to be in control. In the meantime, I'm missing out on opportunities over obsessing over my time. I want a day off. I'll, I'll, I'll make, I'll, I, won't, I won't do anything on a day. And then stuff pops up. And I'm, oh, this is supposed to be my day. This is supposed to, I'm supposed to be getting rest. And I spend more time being frustrated about it <laughs> and mad about it. And then there'll be opportunities where I'm packed full. And then, you know, things don't happen, whatever. Don't end up doing those things. People cancel, I cancel, I don't know. But then I have an opening, and I'm like, oh, I spent all this time planning on this. I was counting on this. When God's like, dude, I'm just giving you some rest. That precious rest that you wanted, here it is. And I'm like, oh, I'm so mad. I have to change my schedule. I'm going to have to. Do you feel that, though? I got to build my schedule in a certain way. I got to do all these things. My kids got to do all these things. Or, or, or what? It's God's time. It's not my time. God's going to do it that he wants to anyway. He's done that, uh, I don't know, 52 times 29. That many weeks. A lot of weeks. I'm not getting it through my head. I need help with that. I need to trust. I need to give that to God. One of the things I've been able to do that has helped me in that, if this is, if this is even resonating with you at all, is I've got to change my mind. My time is not about what I can do. My time is not about I've got to get blank done. My time is about being. One of the cool things I learned about our spiritual ancestors in the Bible is that they didn't view the beginning of their day with the sunrise. They viewed the beginning of their day with the sunset. Your day begins with rest. 
and then from there you can go out to do God's good work. That's been helpful for me. I'm wrestling with that, though, deeply, deeply. And so let's go to Luke 6. Luke 6, 46. Okay, I know we read 7 and 8 last week, okay? But this, this leapt off the page, and this is going into chapter 7. Plus, they didn't have the chapter markers in there in the first place, so, I mean, it's, this is fine. It's fine. This is Jesus in, in, in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone, I know, yeah, oh, as for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, that sounds a little like faith talk, doesn't it? I will show you what they're like. They're like a man building a house. Here's that building language again. Like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck the house and could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man... So that sounds like a lack of faith. It's like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck the house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. Self-faith never lasts. I love being a history teacher. We see that all the time. That's one of the things we miss out in history class because your teacher wants to talk about World War II all the time. But human civilizations... People, us, when we're building our own empire, it's like Jenga. It always falls down. Always. It doesn't last. Do you even want to hear that this morning? Do you want to hear that what you're building on your own without God will not last? I don't think a lot of us do. I don't. Because <laughs> if I really believe that, I've got to change things. I've got to change my priorities, my feelings. Systems built on humanity's trust of self always fall. So you can either deconstruct your systems of self-faith or they will be demolished for you. What would you prefer? Jesus lays it out. We have an opportunity now because of Jesus, because of God's spirit living within us, where we can have the safety in the relationships together Tear ourselves down a little bit. Examine ourselves. Wouldn't you rather do that now with the help of God's spirit? With the help of your brothers and sisters and the encouragement and love they provide? Or would you rather just have it blown down? That's a... Okay. All right. Self-faith is a bust. Trusting in God is more than a must. It's how we're made. It's how we are made. Here's the bottom line. God is still choosing the faithful to partner with him in restoring the world. It It doesn't stop on the last page of your Bible. It doesn't stop there. It continues with us today. God's still choosing the faithful to partner with him. Jesus gives us that pathway of what it looks like to do that. So if you're one of those people where you're like, show me how, show me how, read Jesus. Read Jesus. Go back to Luke 6, as that sister so wisely said this morning. 
Jesus gives us a pathway to living that life and seeing the systems of self-faith around us for what they truly are, facade. So here's some questions to ponder. And maybe these questions are just starting places and it spurs more questions in your heart from the Spirit. Why should faith mean just as much to you and I as it did to Jesus, as it does to Jesus? Yes, I'll send these out before someone asks. What would it mean for you to deconstruct the systems of self-faith in your own life? Things that you've built your faith on that aren't from God. Are these things, are, are there things that you cling to that Jesus didn't cling to? How can you empower the faithful around you and who might be getting overlooked because of our systems? We're going to have time of communion here. We're going to have, yes, the, the crinkling of the cups here in a moment. But come with, come with me to Luke 22. We're just going to look in Luke 22 and look at Jesus and just how faithful he was to God's story in the, in the worst of, of situations you can possibly imagine. Jesus had faith in God's story to the grave. In Luke 22, verse 42, when he's in, when he's praying, he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He then goes on in chapter 23. You can just listen. As he's being killed, crucified, he's on mission. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He says to the guy next to him that's being crucified, truly, I tell you, you will be with me today in paradise. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus has faith in God's story to the grave, trusting in God, continuing the mission, despite how much it hurts. The Bible is emphatic about us carrying our cross every day, and it's going to hurt. Do you trust in God in that hurt? Jesus shows us how. Thank God for him. We'll end on this thought here, this passage here, and we'll pray. Back to Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, maybe just close your eyes and listen to us. I know we've read a lot of passages this morning. Just close your eyes. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, 
but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is, the faith, is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence in the hope in which we glory. Please pray with me. Our Father, we come before you this morning. We just thank you so much for your son and the faithfulness that he has in you. As much, God, as we might try to displace that, Father, he is the pioneer. We are to be like him. He trusted you so far to the point of death. And yet, God, we can trust you so little. Forgive us. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see you through him, to trust that he has done all of the things that he has done so that we can commune with you. We can dwell with you. Father, I pray for us collectively. As we live, as we, as, as we think about Building, God, we think about your kingdom. We think about us as your house. You've already built us, God. You've already made us, God. Help us to not get too focused on trying to build our own thing. We look at Jesus alone this morning. We fix our eyes on him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.